Okay, we're going to get going here. John chapter 12. We're actually going to backtrack two verses. I think Brother Freddie uh, finished up to verse 36 of chapter 12, but we're going to backtrack to verse 35 and go from 35 to, ver- to verse 50. And, um, and so what we want to talk about, the title of the message tonight is When Mercy Runs Out. When Mercy Runs Out. And this is, a, this is, as I said earlier at the end of the prayer time, it's a very sobering section to look at in John chapter 12 because not only is it the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry, it's the beginning of, it's towards the end of Passion Week and Jesus is days away from his crucifixion and the Jewish nation as a whole and the, the, the religious leaders are days away from their complete rejection of Jesus and how they did not receive him as their Messiah, and they crucified him. And so it, it is some sobering truths that we're going to look at. But before we get into it, first of all, I just want to thank Pastor Freddie for preaching uh, this last Wednesday. Uh, where was I at last Wednesday? I don't remember. I was at kids camp. Kids camp, yeah. So I was on the, no, last Wednesday, last Wednesday was first Wednesday prayer. But it was Wednesday before that, I was on vacation when you preached. I was in Florida. Uh, vacation was interesting. In, uh, we went in Florida. Estelle got sick, running fever, and so we were, it, it, it was fun. She's, she's, she's better now, but um, thank you for preaching two Wednesdays back. Um, so uh, it's been a couple weeks since we looked at John, but eventually we're going to get through John here, uh, but this is a very interesting section, but before we get into the text, I just want to kind of talk about this reality in our culture. You know, we live in a very angry society wouldn't you say very angry anger filled culture a lot of hostility people are just seem to be angry at everybody and anybody you talk to somebody the wrong way you know you know you're driving we were what were we doing we were on the road uh, and this truck passed up me and Estelle and you know I was going the speed limit and I guess maybe I guess maybe he thought I shouldn't be in the lane that I was in and, uh, and so he just passed me up on the right side, and boy, he was turning like this, staring us down. And I just, I honked my horn and waved to him. Um, but just angry, just people are angry, and they get offended so quickly. And they're ready for people to pay the consequences for their choices. They're, they want to get even. People want to get even. Whenever they're wrong, they're ready to, to get even. And what is mercy? What is mercy? What is grace? What is patience and kindness and gentleness? It seems to be gone in our political discussions. It seems to be gone in our relationships that, that, uh, that people have on jobs and just in the culture, generally speaking. We just, there's a lot of anger and, and people want others to pay the price for their mistakes and their failures. And, and there's, not a lot, there's not a lot of patience. And what we're going to see here is that Men are not like God. Men are not like God. Because we know, Scripture tells us that God is patient. And God is long-suffering. And God, God waits and withholds his judgment. And if we got what we deserved, you know, that guy thought I deserved something on that road. And he wanted me to get it. And he was staring me down because I've wronged him. Right? God is patient and long-suffering. And if we all got what we deserved, none of us would be here. 
None of us would be here. And so this is kind of the backdrop leading into this section of John chapter 12. Because there are some very heavy theological things that we're going to look at here that really are hard for us to understand. They're really, in, the, in our natural mind, what we're going to look at is hard for us to understand and wrap our minds around unless we begin this section with the understanding that we don't get what we deserve as human beings, generally speaking. Because by nature we're born in sin, none of us even deserve to live. And we're going to look further into that. But, but when we get into difficult sub- subjects that we're going to get into in this section, you have to come at it from the correct launching point. And the correct launching point to understand these truths that we're going to look at is that nobody deserves mercy. Nobody deserves grace. Nobody deserves that, that we would be forgiven. We all deserve to get the consequences of our choices. But the truth is, the reality is, is that God in Christ, is patient, is kind, is gentle, is long-suffering, and wants to pour out his grace on all of us. He wants to pour it out on all of us in his son, Jesus Christ, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so let's look at John 12. Again, this, the context is, this is the last public declaration of Jesus Christ, publicly to the Jews, after, when we get in chapter 13 and on, It's just private with his disciples that he's going to discuss things. He's going to teach them even further lessons about reality, about why he came and about where he's going. And they're not going to understand. And then then he's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And they're all going to scatter. And And then they're going to go in the upper room. And they're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And and then the church is going to be birthed. But before all that takes place, Jesus speaks his last statement publicly to the Jewish to the Jewish nation to the nation of Israel so let's look at John 12 and we're going to read all the verses that we're going to cover John 12 35 through 15 and we'll go back and unpack it so John 12 starting in 35 so Jesus said to them the light is among you for a little while longer I just want to stop right here he used this phrase if you go back John 6 John 7 multiple times he talked about this phrase I'm only here for a little while I'm here for a little while, a little while. He says it later on. We're going to hear it in the next chapters. I'm here for a little while. Right now, it's just a few days. Later on in the next few chapters when he says, you only have me for a a little while, it's really only a few hours later on. So he's saying, you only have. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's gone. The light goes out. He goes and hides himself and doesn't reveal himself publicly anymore until he's publicly crucified for all to see. And he privately discusses the truths of the kingdom with his disciples after this. He goes, he departs, hides himself from them. Though he, had, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, says Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, 
God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So profound. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We're going to unpack that. That's a phrase a lot of people say. Jesus didn't come to judge. We're going to explain what that really means here. For I, 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 I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words. The, the, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Okay, you guys ready? That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of really challenging things that we're looking at there. You've got people that have rejected God. And they don't want anything to do with God, even though they have seen the miracles. It said that in verse 35, in verse 37, it says that they saw the many miracles that Jesus did. And, and it says that they would not, they still would not believe in him. And then you've got a group of them late, later on in these verses. It says, it says that, that, that they did believe in him, but they were unwilling to publicly confess him for fear of the of the Pharisees, of the Jews, of the Jewish leaders, because they could get kicked out of, the, of their synagogue, of their church, of their temple, if they publicly confessed Christ. And because they weren't willing to publicly confess Christ, it says of them that they love the glory or the approval of man more than the glory or approval of God. And then in the middle of all of that, you've got God saying that he hardened hearts and he put them in a position to reject him. He hardened them. So what do we do with the, this reality that we see? Let's go back to the text there. It says there, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So what do we do with that? How do we understand this reality that God hardens someone's heart? How do we understand that in view of the reality that we all have responsibility to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does that mean that God hardened their hearts? So we're, I'm going to do my best to unpack all of that. There's some frustrations that people have with subjects like this, but I think we have some answers in Scripture. And so we're going to try, I'm going to try my best to help us all out. So, the, so I framed it like this. There's four things that we learn that we see, that we learn and see about God in this section. And the first one is this, is that God is patient and long-suffering. God is patient and long-suffering. And let's go back to John 12, at the, fir the first two verses that we looked there. John 12, 35 through 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Who's the light? Who is Jesus talking about? 
himself. He's saying, I'm with you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Walk in the light. Believe in me while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. While you have me here, while you have time, while you have opportunity, respond to Christ. While you have breath in your lungs, make a choice to believe in Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying here. Believe in me while you have time. I'm only here for a little while. Believe in me. Follow me. Obey me. Because the darkness will overtake you if you don't. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons, that you may become sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, adopted into the light that is Christ. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so here's the reality. These people that, he is, are, are, that he's speaking to, they are about to reject him. And Jesus was patient with them. For over three and a half, for, for three and a half years of his earthly ministry, he spoke the truth over and over and over again to people who would not listen. He would do miracles over and over again to people who would reject him. And they tried to stone him. They tried to kill him multiple times before they finally arrested him and crucified him. But he was continually patient with them. He was trying to draw them to himself. If you, if you remember in the book of Matthew, it talks about how when Jesus is at the end in, in the gospel of Matthew around this time, in Matthew chapter 23, it says there at the end of chapter 23, it says that, that Jesus cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to, call, to, to bring you to myself. And when he says Jerusalem, speaking about the nation of Israel. He's saying, I've been among you, and I've wanted to call you to myself. I wanted you to come to me. But what did it say? You, he said, but you were not willing. You were not willing. You did not believe. You would not believe. In spite of all of the miracles, in spite of all that I did, you wouldn't believe. And I'm doing these things so you would believe. If, you know, when we study in the, in the Gospel of John, the very first lesson that we started with, I started at the end of the book. And what does it say in John 21 at the end of the Gospel of John? It says that these signs, these things that are written about the miracles of Jesus Christ and these signs were done so that you would believe. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this is what Jesus is saying there in Matthew. I've wanted to call you. I've been patient with you. I've been, I've had, I've been long-suffering with you. But you weren't willing. And so we know that is true of God. He is patient. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His desire is that none of us would harden our heart against him and against the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that we would all reach repentance. And so what, what is he towards us? He is patient. And how is he patient? He's patient in the reality that he doesn't judge us instantly for our sin and our rebellion against him. We don't get instant judgment. He's patient. He, he, he calls us to himself. He calls us to himself. And before we're a Christian, there's so many times you can think back in your life as a Christian, in your, in your ignorance, in your willful, in your ignorance, and then also in your willful disobedience, you should have gotten worse than what you've gotten. We should have gotten worse than what we got. But God was patient and he was kind. 
And then as believers, as he draws us by that kindness, because he doesn't judge us for our sin, he draws us, that's the kindness that draws us to himself. As believers, he's still patient with us. And we're going to look in the next series, as we go into the book of Ephesians, we're going to see how God's patience provides for us. And his kindness provides for us. How does God's patience and kindness provide for us as Christians? In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that he gives us gifts. And he gives us the fivefold ministry in the church for, the, for our perfection. That as the pastors and the teachers teach God's word, that we grow in the faith and we mature. And he's patient with us as believers. And he helps us grow day by day, moment by moment, as we're subjected to his word. God is patient. He's kind. We see God's patience in Genesis. Think back to Genesis. God created Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God, right? They rebel against God. God could have ended it right there. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm ending this. But what does he do? He doesn't. Now, he banishes them from the garden. But you know, Adam, Adam lived 930 years after that. Lived 930 years. He gave him life. He who didn't deserve life. Because he rebelled against the holy God. You know, there's two, there's two things we have to understand. I, I said that incorrectly. Let me, let me go back and express this. Before we get into some of those difficult truths about God hardening hearts and blinding eyes. There's two things we really need to, to understand. And I said the first one that we need to understand. We don't get what we deserve. But before we understand that, we must understand God is holy. God is holy. And we are infinitely sinful. And we don't deserve to be in God's presence. And sin and holiness cannot dwell together. And so if you don't understand that God is holy and you believe that you are basically good and you're not, you don't have sin, then none of this makes sense to you. None of that makes, it doesn't make sense to people who don't understand the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. But those are the two things that are so fundamental to understand what we're looking at. God is patient with us. If you look at the history of the nation of Israel. Look at the history of the nation of Israel. It is a history of God continually being patient with their rebellion and their idolatry, right? Over and over again, the, the history of the nation of Israel is the worship of the one true God. And then they would connect with foreign nations that worship false gods. They would intermarry with them and then they would start worshiping false idols and, and they have idolatry and then, and then they would be taken captive and then they would be, then, then, then they would be defeated and then God, and then God would have to restore them back and God would have to bring them back. And it was just this cycle of, of idolatry, of rebellion and sin against God. And then God would bring him back. That was the cycle. That's the history of the nation of Israel. But God was continually patient with them. Look at Jeremiah 22, 21. It says this. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but, but, but you said, I will not listen. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, this is the nation. This is the prophet Jeremiah saying of Israel. I spoke to you, but you would not listen. This has been your way from your, from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Jeremiah 32, 30 says this, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. So you see, that's their history. Rebellion coming back. Rebellion coming back. This is what the Lord says of them. But look at what it says in Psalm 78 about them. Psalm 78, look at God's patience. Yet he, God, being compassionate, 
atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Did not destroy them. They deserved it, but he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Prophet Isaiah speaks of of God's patience to the nation of Israel. God says this, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. So God was patient with the nation of Israel over and over again. This is who God is and God is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same patient, long-suffering God. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 4. We see God's patience. Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This scripture right here is so misinterpreted all of the time. Most of the time you hear that preached, people talk about, well, when God is good to you, That's how it's going to draw you to repentance. That when God's good to you and you get things and he blesses you, well, that's what's going to, when you see the goodness of God and how he takes care of his people, well, then he's going to draw you to himself. That's not what that's talking about. The whole context of that section right there is the context of judgment. And how is God good to us? It's his forbearance. It's his patience. It's his kindness that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And it is that kindness when we see that God is holy and we see that we are not and we, and we marvel, we marvel that God has not, us, has not struck us dead yet. It's that kindness. We say, God, you, you are infinitely holy, but you are infinitely kind and patient in that you have not given me what I rightfully deserve as a sinner. And it's that kindness when somebody sees that, when they see that, not, not when they see the perks, not when they see the benefit plan, Not not when they see that, but when they see that we don't deserve any of that stuff. When they see that God is that kind, he hasn't judged us instantly because of our rebellion. It's that kindness that leads us to humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, I'm yours. I repent. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, says that today is a day of repentance. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, again, this is a reference from Isaiah. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why is it now? Because God is patient. Why is it now? Because the light is here. Because now is a season of mercy. Now is a time of mercy. But there's judgment coming. There's, there's judgment coming. We're going to look at it at the, at the end of this message in Revelation chapter 6. When the, 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 the seals of the wrath of God are going to be opened. We're going to look at it when we conclude this message. There is judgment coming for those who reject Christ. It's coming. But while we're in a time of mercy, now is the time. While you have breath in your lungs, while you have the light. Let's go back to that text. Let's read it in that context again. The, the, the beginning of John 12, 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. The time of mercy is now. The time of the gospel is now. The light is among you for a little while longer. You don't know when your next breath is going to be your last breath. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. But while you have the light, while you have the light, while you have the opportunity, believe in Jesus. Believe in the light. Respond to him. And that's the gospel message. And, and that's the picture. Is that God is patient and he's kind. And he wants men to repent. He wants men to not perish. He wants men, the Father God wants men to receive the love gift that he provided in his son Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So they won't have to fall under the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed that wrath for them. That's who our God is. He's patient and he's kind. And we see that. This is the last public declaration of Jesus to the nation of Israel. And we see that the last thing that he tells them is receive me. I'm the light. Follow after me. Repent. Believe in me lest the darkness overtake you. It's amazing. Last thing he says. And as we move on here, the second thing that we see is that they didn't really believe. They rejected. They rejected. And they crucified the light. They snuffed out the light. They thought they snuffed out the light. The devil thought he won the victory. They thought they could snuff out the eternal son of God. But it was their unbelief that led them to believe that. So the second thing we see as we continue on is that unbelief is a powerful force. God is merciful and patient and long-suffering, but unbelief is a powerful force. Let's look at John's, go back to the text. We looked at 35 and 36. Let's look at verse 37. And then we're going to jump over and look at 42 and 43. We're going to look at two categories of people here that are in unbelief. Verse 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And look, we've gone over this over and over again. I remember several weeks back, a couple months back, we talked about how we continually are seeing in the Gospel of John all these signs and these miracles that Jesus is doing and how it is met with unbelief every single time, over and over again. And you have a remnant that believes, but you always have the overwhelming majority of people who reject, especially the religious leaders. They reject, they reject, they refuse to believe. And that's what it says here. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still, or they would not, they would not, they still did not, they would not believe in him. They would not, they they did not choose to believe in him. Then you have the next category in verse 42 and 43. It says this. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you have this other category of people that they looked at the signs and they said, Clearly, this guy is the son of God. Clearly, he's sent from God. But they would not confess it publicly because they were more concerned about the approval of man than the approval of God. And so, my belief here is that those people were not genuinely saved because of what we see in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. What does Romans 10, 9 and 10 say? That to be saved, you must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God And that God raised him from the dead. And then you will be saved. They believed, but their belief was not in faith. It did not lead to a confession of faith. They were ashamed of Christ. They had more fear of man than they had fear of God. Unbelief is a powerful force. To take somebody, two different groups of people, some that saw the signs, 
And they refused. They would not believe in him. Then you take a group that saw all the signs and said, yeah, God's real. Jesus is real. He is real. He is a son of God. But they were unwilling to confess it because they feared men more than they feared God. Unbelief is a powerful force. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is the the center of who we are. It's connected with our beliefs and what we really hold to be true. And it says, the prophet Jeremiah says of of our heart, of of our thoughts, of our feelings, of our emotions, that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand the human heart and what we believe and what we hold to be true? Who can understand this deceitful heart? So my question to you is this, is why do people continue in their unbelief? In spite of all the evidence, why do people continue in their unbelief? I have three foundational answers that I'm going I'm to talk to you about. But why, why do you think people continue in their unbelief despite all the evidence? I'll, I'll say as Pastor Freddie did. I, I, I listened to your message and I, I liked how you said, I'm a teacher, so raise your hand. So, so raise your hand and, we'll, and we'll, we'll call on you. Why do people continue in their unbelief? They want to do the things they, that they want to do. That's correct. Be their own boss. Captain, how many of you have ever heard that phrase? I am the captain of my, de- my own destiny. You know, I'm the captain of my ship. To make, you know, I don't, it's something like that. Maker of my own destiny. It's exactly what happened. We saw that in the scripture, right? They wouldn't confess for fear of man. For fear of man. They didn't want to be rejected. There was prestige by being connected with the synagogue, with the, with the, with the Jewish temple, and having that reputation, that connection. So that's, that, that is exactly right. Their hearts become hardened? Absolutely. That's right. That's right, and we're, and we're going to get to that. That's exactly right. They, they rather the darkness of sin than, than, the, than the light. Absolutely. They prefer the pleasure of flesh. Absolutely. Vern, I think you had your hand up. Were there? Somebody? Yes. They enjoy, yeah, we're kind of all saying very similar things. They enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. They enjoy it. Absolutely. So here's three things, and you guys hit everything that I talked about here. The first one is this, is that because they love their sin. Because they love their sin. Secondly, because the light will expose what is in the dark. Because they love their sin and because the light will expose what is in the dark. And then thirdly, because the God of this world has blinded them. Let's look at John chapter 3, 19 and 20. We studied this several months back. And this is the judgment right after John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then verse 19 says, and this is the judgment, that the light that God has sent 
the gift that God has given in Jesus Christ. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's, what, that's those two points there, because they love their sin and because the light will expose what is in the dark. That's why people remain in their unbelief. And thirdly, because the God of this world has blinded them. And that comes from 2 Corinthians 4. It says this, and even if our gospel, the good news about the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is even if it's veiled, People are prevented from seeing it. It is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are in unbelief. In their case, those that are unbelievers, the God, lowercase g, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is one reason why people stay in unbelief, because they are deceived by Sin. They're deceived by the God of this world and they have bought into the cultural lies that Satan is, is telling and they are blinded. And I just want to say this as we conclude this point. Unbelief is a powerful force that can only be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no amount of convincing that I can do as a preacher. There's no amount of convincing that, I, that any of us can do as, 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 as believers in Jesus Christ with those that are, that, that are blinded by Satan, blinded by their sin. They love their sin. They love the darkness and they, don't, and they are in their unbelief. There's no amount of convincing and great arguments that we can give them that can convince them in and of ourselves to choose Jesus. It has to be. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power that wakes them from their slumber. That opens their eyes to see that God is holy, that they are sinful, and that they must repent. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Unbelief is a a powerful force, but the Holy Spirit's power is greater. Amen? Amen? Unbelief is a powerful force, but the Holy Spirit's power is greater. The gospel is greater. The power of Jesus Christ is greater than any force in this world. Amen. The third thing that we see here, the first two, we see that God is patient. We see he's long-suffering. And we see groups of people that are in their unbelief. And it's a powerful force. And they need the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Third thing that we see is this. This is a reality that we live with every day of our life. Is this, that God is sovereign and men are responsible. God is sovereign and men are are responsible. Let's look at that middle section here. Let's go back to John 12 and we'll read 37 through 40. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And that, and that phrase there means they would not. They would not. They still did not believe in him. They made a conscious decision to not believe in spite of the evidence. They looked at the evidence of who Jesus is and what he is doing and they said, I'm not going to believe. I will not. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Two phrases, would not, could not, would not, could not. Would not is what? That's us. That's us. It's our responsibility. It's our choice. We have a choice to either receive Christ 
or reject Christ. Believe in who he is. And if we stay in our unbelief, we stand the chance of not being able to respond. Mercy is going to run out. And this is what this text is saying. They would not, they would not, they would not, they would not. And eventually they could not. Mercy ran out. The light went out. Would not and could not. And that is a pattern throughout all of scripture. You see it throughout the Old Testament. Nations that would not, would not, would not submit to the one true God. And then they could not and they were judged. And then you see it in the book of Revelation. Would not, would not, would not, would not, and then could not. And at the end, we're going to look. At the end, they cry out for rocks to fall on them to cover them because of the wrath of God. Would not, would not, would not, then judgment. And now they cannot. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. You reject God, and may we never get to the place where we cannot respond, where we cannot because God has judged us. Do you remember in Exodus over and over again? Ten times, ten times it says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God would send Moses to talk to Pharaoh and it would say that he hardened his heart and rejected God's word. He hardened his heart ten times. Here's an example, Exodus 7, 13 and 14. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not, would not, could not, he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Exodus 4 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Pharaoh would not. So God says, you cannot. It's the truth. How do we deal with that? I don't know. It's the truth. He has a, we have a choice. And the scriptural reality is that at some point, mercy will run out. And people may not have a choice. And they will be judged by God. Because they rejected the only light that is, that is available. There, this is a form of God's wrath. When God gives a person over to the desire of their heart. And I want to read a long section. You guys with me? A long section of what this form of wrath looks like in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. And this is the phrase, God will give people over to the desire of their heart. They would not. So God says, now you cannot, and I'm giving you over to what you want. Romans 8, 18 through 32. Let's read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is a wrath of abandonment. It's a wrath of letting you go to your own desires. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the truth that they're suppressing? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God's given us a conscience and an understanding of, of, of right and wrong. And then it also says that God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world. So we have an inward knowledge of right and wrong. And then God gave us the evidence of creation. This is the truth that men of unrighteousness suppress. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. 
But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. Got life all figured out. I have all the answers. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What it's saying there is that men ignore the reality that God made it plain to them that he is real, he is alive, the general revelation of God. They ignored it and they refused to worship the incorruptible God. And instead of worshiping the incorruptible God as the only God, they worshiped creation themselves. They worshiped creation. And here's what that worship looks like. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They're worshiping creation right here. They gave, he gave them over. He abandoned them. He, he, he gave them over in, the, in his wrath to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, again, God gave them over. He let them go to their own ways to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. God established that human sexuality would function between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And when men suppress the truth of God, they end up living lives of sexual impurity in all kind of devious ways. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over three times. God gave them over. He says, this is how you want to go. You would not, you would not, you would not go. I I give you over. God gave them over to a depraved mind to to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but what do they do? They celebrate with those who do it. They give, some translations say, hearty approval. That's what it says there, hearty approval to those who do the same. They, they, they applaud. Oh, that's the sin you're, you're functioning, that, that you're walking in. Good job. Way to go. Because they feel like they're justified in their rebellion. What's that phrase? Misery loves company. Those who walk in rebellion against God, they love company. Sobering. Would not. Would not. Cannot. Could not. That is a reality. God is sovereign. But men are responsible. And one day God's mercy will run out. But where's the hope? And here's what I, 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 I want to say as we transition to this final point. And this is, this is a hard truth to understand, but it's, it's, it's true. God used the rebellion and the unbelief of the nation of Israel so that salvation could come to the Gentiles. It was preordained. 
but they still would not. It was preordained that they would rebel and that they would crucify him and that he would provide salvation for us Gentiles, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. But they were still responsible because they would not. They would not. They would not believe. And then it got to the point where they could not. So how does that all work out? I'm not sure. doesn't make sense in my natural mind how God can preordain but still hold people responsible. But the Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29. And there's things that, that if I could figure it all out, then I would be God and he wouldn't be. And this would be, this wouldn't be Living Word Church, this would be Ben Bufkin's church. <laughs> but we're in submission to the one true God. And his ways are higher than our ways. And the scripture says they're, they're, they're even past finding out. Here's the last truth we see in this text. First one is, is that God is patient and he's kind. Second thing that we see in this text is that I always always do this. I forget my points. (laughs) We see God's patient and he's kind. And we see that unbelief is a powerful force. And we see that God is sovereign and men are responsible. And then lastly, the good news is that Jesus came to save the world. He came to save the world. That's what we see here. We see, after we see that God God has judged, he's judging those that have have rejected him. We see that he came to save the world and Jesus declares Verses 44, and Jesus cried out. After he had hidden himself, he popped back up. And he spoke and he said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, whoever sees him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Basically saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he has made that statement previously in John. I have come into the world as light, as we read in verse 35, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So I just want to say this right here to clarify what, this, what he's saying here. Because people will use this. They'll take that out of context and people that are unbelievers will say, Hey, Jesus, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He's not here to judge you. God doesn't judge. You know, do what you want to do, live how you want to live. But what he's saying is, is that I was sent from God the Father to save, not to judge. My purpose was not to judge, it was to die on the cross. To, to, to pay for the penalty of sin of the, of the whole world. I came to save. And he says judgment is coming. And he says it right here. I didn't come to judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. I'm not going to judge them. Someone else will. Who's going to judge the world who rejects Jesus? It is the word that I have spoken that will judge him. And what was the word that he spoken? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes into the Father but through me. It is the exclusivity of the gospel that will judge people who reject him. It's his words that will reject him. That he is the only way. It is the father that will judge in the end for those who reject his son. I didn't, he says, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. But there will be judgment for those who reject me. And the word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what not to say. 
And I know that his commandment is eternal life. That if you will follow the commandment of the Father, which is believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You guys remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19? 19? Short Zacchaeus, tax collector Zacchaeus, tax collector of the Jews. He He would rob from his people. Tax collectors of the Jews would rob from his own people, his own nation. He'd rob from them. And they were hated amongst the Jews. And I love this, little, this story here. In Luke 19, it says this. And Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was, the, he was the worst of the worst of the sinners, according to the Jews. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the boss. And why was he rich? Because he was a thief. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay or I need to stay at your house today. I love that. That's a sermon right there. Oh man, there's some, I, Brother Freddie, we could preach right here. And this is, I could, I'm telling you, Brother Freddie could preach for half hour right there. That is so good. I love all this stuff right here. In some translations say that Jesus needed to pass through. He, he needed to pass through. Why? Because he had a divine appointment right there. Right there. When you are lost and you're in the darkness, God knows how to find you. He knows your address. He knows where you live. He knows the situations that you're in. And when you think you are too far gone, he has a way to get a hold of you. That's the truth. He had to go through Jericho because he had an appointment with Zacchaeus. Hurry down, Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. What does that mean right there? Zacchaeus received him with joy. It's belief, it's faith. And when they saw Zacchaeus, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, right? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they grumbled about Jesus and they said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods. How do we know that, that Zacchaeus has been converted? How do we know? True conversion produces Change behavior right here. Look, look at this. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and had he defrauded, he had defrauded. That's why he was rich. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, four times what I took from people as a thief and a tax collector. I give it four times back. And Jesus said to him today. Salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man, for the son of man did what? Came. Why did he come? Not to judge, but to seek and to save the lost. The judgment will come when you reject why Jesus came. The judgment will come when you reject the purpose for why Jesus came. You reject the purpose for why Jesus came to save you from your sins, then you will receive the judgment. And one day, the mercy of God will run out. One day, it will be gone, and men will look for rocks to hide under. And this is how we will conclude this message. Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And when he opened the sixth seal, 
I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and then everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. This is so sad. So sad. They could have called out to the rock that is higher than I. But they didn't. They would not. They would not. They would not call out to that rock who is the chief cornerstone. But they rejected the cornerstone. So they called out to the very rocks and the mountains that had no life in them. That didn't have light. Didn't have life. Calling to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Lord, I just pray. God, that we would come to understand this truth, this reality, what we've looked at. God, that you are patient and you are kind and you are long-suffering, that you wish that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And God, I pray, Lord, that those that are in our life, and maybe some here tonight that are in unbelief, that have rejected your patience and your kindness and your mercy that is revealed in your son Jesus Christ, if they are in unbelief and those that we know they're in unbelief, God, I pray that they would respond to your kindness and that they would repent. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us the boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel that is the only power of God unto salvation. Lord, I pray for, I pray for, For us, God, that these truths would remind us, God, that that you are God and we are not. And that you you are worthy that we would worship you forever. And Lord, we do call out to the rock that is higher than I. And we submit ourselves to the chief cornerstone that is the foundation of our lives and the foundation of this church. God, we thank you for all of all of these truths. May we submit ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.